welcome to Season 9 of the Art of Teaching podcast. My name's Matthew Green and I'm so grateful that you've joined me today. Before we get started with our discussion, I would like to acknowledge the Darawal people, the traditional custodians of this land on which I'm recording, and pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging. I acknowledge the stories, traditions and living cultures of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples on this land. pleasure of introducing you to the work of Dr. Kevin House. He is the Senior Executive at AIM and is responsible for managing and directing the research, development and quality assurance of all future focus education models. He is currently building regenerative curriculum architectures and digital credentialing solutions for Green School Education and the School of Humanity. His specialisations include curriculum and assessment, educational technology integrations and designing school quality evaluation frameworks. Apart from his fascinating work, this conversation got really personal. Kevin shared some of his experiences as a school student and also some of the differences that great teachers made in his life. I hope that you get as much out of this wide ranging conversation as I did. Please enjoy. Uh, Dr. Kevin House, thank you uh, so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Whereabouts are you phoning in from? I'm based in Singapore. I've been here for 14 years. Uh, prior to that, I was in China for six years. Prior to that, I was in Spain for three. Then I was in Thailand for two. And before that, I was in Africa for three years in Botswana. Gosh, and before that in the UK, I imagine, from uh, from the accent. Yeah, before that, I, I, I come from the UK. I never actually really worked. I've worked for a while in what we call further education, which is what you would know of as community college. Yeah. I did work in that space for a very short period of time. And I did work in a, in a private school whilst yeah. I went back to do a master's part-time. Fantastic. Quite possibly uh, the most important com- uh, question for our conversation. Uh, what's, your, uh, what's your coffee order when I can finally buy your coffee? Uh, lately, it's, um, I think you would refer to it as a long black in Australia. So lately, I'm assuming that there's been a change. What brought on that, uh, what, what brought on that change and what was before the long black? Uh, my wife and I were both, we're both doing, um, is it 16, 8? Fasting. Yeah, intermittent fasting. fasting. Yeah. So we still, we couldn't give up coffee in the morning, so we just took out anything else that was in it. So that that's pretty hardcore. I tried for a while doing uh, 24, which was an absolute killer. Um, and so I've probably um, uh, come back to the 16-8 fast a little bit uh, a little bit better. So it's pretty hardcore, 24. So I imagine that is a 16-8 manageable for you guys or, or, or yeah? Uh, yeah. I, look, I did a 10-day juice fast a few years ago. And then I also did a four-day water fast once, a long time ago. Um, and I find the older you get, um, skipping a meal is not such a big deal anymore. Yeah. So Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Um, is there an item that is still on your bucket list, something that you would, uh, something that you'd love to do? Well, as, as I mentioned before we started recording, um, seeing England, Australia, ashes, somewhere in Australia. If I could, I'd love it to be the MCG, but uh, um, I would take another venue if it was if it was uh, applicable. The old the old wacker would have been my top choice, but obviously we wouldn't come out very well missing you guys there, but yeah. just the experience would have been would have been great. Nice one. And uh, is there a book that you've read? Um, it could be in the field or your speciality in education, or it could be outside of education that has caused you to stop and reconsider a few things in your life. A uh, couple of things that spring to mind. One is a book by a guy called Herman Taneja called Unscaled, um, which talks about healthcare finance and education in the context of 
the kind of ubiquities around technology and, and some of the opportunities that that offers to unscale. So mm. that for me in the education context, that's been um, a very good uh, provocation. Um, and another one, I suppose, would be Gert Biester's latest book about world education. Um, quite keen on Biester's perspective on the purpose of education. Fantastic. And uh, what was it that he wrote uh, that was particularly uh, moving for you? I think with Biester's work, I'd spent a lot of time and have spoken about really trying to break down what, what is the purpose of education. And of course, from a more complex systems approach, it's not a simple question because it depends on the context of the education, whether it's in public sector or private sector, whether it's in an international or national context. Um, but Viesta talks about three functions of education. One of them's around qualification, another one's around socialization, another one's about subjectification. And in his latest book, I mean, he's written extensively about former two, I think, in, in various papers. But the one that interested me was the what, what he was driving at around the notion of subjectification, so the purpose of education, really about this, the, the development of, of being, um, in a sense, um, education being a journey through which one critically evaluates not just one's communities, but also the ways in which we construct knowledge and the impact all of that has on us in the formation of self. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Really interesting. And uh, Kevin, we'll get into some of your amazing work um, as we move through this interview. I mean, there's so much in there, um, almost a separate podcast in itself, I think that is. Uh, but uh, really, really interesting. I'm just curious. Um, what was your upbringing like and what are you most grateful for uh, from your parents? How did we get to where we are today? Because not everybody seems to take this more alternative route down the education rabbit hole that you have. Yeah. I suppose in later life, I've reflected on it a fair bit. I grew up in a, I would say, working poor family um, in the south coast of England in the 1970s and um, really, that, those are quite depressed areas of the country, still are. Uh, seasonal work, high levels of unemployment, substance abuse, largely to do with really the fact that there are no industries to speak of apart from tourism. And in the winter months in the UK, um, as you know, tourism is not necessarily a hot topic in people's lives, so there's not really much work there. Um, I also was uh, schooled in, I think was the county that I grew up in was the last county, if I recall, to embrace um, what, what in the UK we call comprehensive education. So it still maintained grammar schools and what were called secondary modern. So you would sit high stakes sort of summative exams at the age 11 called the 11 plus. Yep. Um, and for a number of reasons, really, having having a mum who was uh, bipolar and suffered uh, quite extensively um, because of that, I had tended to do a lot of childcare for my younger brothers, so I missed quite a lot of school. Sat the eleven plus, managed to fail it quite gloriously. Um, so went to a secondary modern school. Secondary modern schools were kind of set up in classic English fashion to really give you a sense of the class system. So you couldn't sit the same qualifications as you could at grammar school. In those days, grammar school ran at O-levels and A-levels. Yeah. Secondary modern, you would finish school at 16 and you would sit what was called the Secondary Certificate of Education, so CSE. So pretty much from day one, you come into the, to the uh, five-year programme in, in a secondary modern school, and the teachers made it very clear to you that even if you worked your socks off and got a level one in a CSE, that was only the equivalent to a C grade in an O level. So you, you already knew at the very yeah. start of your learning journey, you were being yeah. being um, forced down a path that meant you were 
in ter- in educational terms, a second class citizen. So I think that that kind of had an impact on me. Um, and subsequently left school at 16, I think with one CSE grade one. <laughs> I mean, uh, my mum died when I was 12. And I think dealing with that yeah. um, and, and moving town, you know, a number of other things, again, which have informed me and, and the idea about what kind of skills we need to capture and appreciate and recognize in education. Yeah. I picked up a lot of skills in those years, but of course the narrow academics um, provided in, in industrial style schooling really doesn't appreciate or capture those more yeah. soft skill areas. So yeah. at 16 left school, um, uh, went, off, went off to London because I, even at that age, I kind of had a sense. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I had a sense that um, staying in that town was going to be a dead end, really. So I went to London, worked in the theatre for a while, um, played in bands, worked in um, uh, recording studios, uh, worked on construction sites, and really didn't go back to do a degree until I was 26. Wow. And luckily, in my country then, you could have state funding for a large part of that degree. It was only in the last year of my degree, I think they started to bring in very low-level loans. And so that, again, has been an influence on me in that I realised that having access to education, because the economics allowed for me to have that access as a mature student, sent me off on a path that led me all the way through undergrad, postgrad, doctoral work. Wow. And where I am now. So I think it's uh, it's hugely unfortunate that many English-speaking countries have moved away yeah. from applying the levels of taxation necessary to, to allow to fund um, yeah. public access to, to education. So I think that formed me a lot. In terms of my parents... Um, I guess a sense of family and community was yeah. quite important. We weren't, uh, you know, we weren't uh, by any means an intellectual family or a well-read family. So that side of my life developed really independently much later. But I guess some of the values about family were formed through their influence. And um, Kevin, I was just wondering, do you think that your... Um experience in education helped you or hindered you and 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 why i mean you seem to have got through it doesn't seem like the most uh, traditional path for uh, somebody in research to complete their phd but do you think it in what ways was it a positive impact and what ways do you think it really hindered you i mean you touched on some of those well i guess we'll cover it a bit later but it's really about the experience of what I call industrial scale education. The narrowness of its outcomes, the way in which it's used as a sifting mechanism, the way in which it creates credential capital that allows you access to tertiary, that allows you access to Mm. networks. You know, there's a whole bunch of different elements of social engineering that take place that if in your early life, you don't get the opportunities to, to begin that journey can be quite damning and and, and uh, quite life-defining potentially. Yeah. And I suppose it's interesting that really I spent most of my career in the private sector, ironically. <laughs> that is interesting. You know, and and I can I guess I can explain what I think is a kind of moral responsibility that private education has as for the future of education. So to your question, I think really the experience made me realize that there has to be a better way of educating young people from late childhood through adolescence into early adulthood that can set them up much better than the way in which we do at the moment. Yeah. And just interested, um, Kevin, what do you think your experience in theatre and music and playing in bands taught you? Um, What were some of the 
the skills that you learned in that period and how do you think they um, have kind of set you up for the direction that you've headed in today? I think a lot of creatives are what one popular phrase these days is neurodiverse. I think a lot of creatives uh, have or are wired differently in terms of how they approach problem solving, how they approach project management, how they approach, you know, the development of purpose and so forth. Mm. And I think education, um, although it can allow them to explore those things in very powerful ways, doesn't always necessarily choose to recognize it in that notion of credential capital that I referred to, which is not my phrase. I love the phrase, but great phrase. Yeah. I thought I actually thought it was your phrase. Um, but uh, no, no, I can't claim that Professor Hugh Lauder um, published a book called The Global Auction in about 2010. He was a mentor of mine when I was doing my uh, doctoral work at Bath. So it's it's him and I think Phil Brown, I think it's there. They coined the phrase as far as I'm aware. Fantastic. And um, Kevin, what were you what were you like at school? And uh, was there a teacher that had a significant impact in your life? And um, and why? <laughs> I was kind of asked, that one. <laughs> I was kind of asked to leave. Right. That's interesting. The yeah. end of the final year, the headmistress, as it was, she invited me to uh, let's say, accelerate my exit point. Um, I don't think I was technically expelled, but I was I was pretty much, there was no point. It was the last sort of couple of months of school. I'd sat a few exams. Invited to leave, I like that, yeah. Um, and in terms of teachers, I think there were some teachers who tried to get through to me and make a difference. But as I said earlier, with reference to things going on in my personal life, yeah. Um, I, I I had quite a quite a big barrier around me, and I, I didn't really yeah. want to connect. So actually, my relationships with many staff were more the formative aspects was more around conflict. Um, that on reflection, obviously, as a much older person, I can see that. Frankly, it must have been quite painful trying to deal with me, um, but. I think also I didn't have one of those epiphanies where I connected with a significant adult in my formal education at school that, you know, set me on a track. So, um, yeah, it was more, if you like, my interaction with teachers and where I was in my own kind of psychological and emotional life meant that it was really more determined by disruption conflict and being rebellious mm. so you know i think there was a period in in late teenage life where I, particularly if i'd stayed in my own town i probably could have gone down the the wrong path with regard to law and order so i was a bit bit rough around the edges yeah so um why on earth go back to formal education it seems like you were heading down a particular path, um, obviously moving to London and working in theatre and in music. And what was it for you that um, kind of nudged you towards going back into university? I suppose doing all of those things, I well, with the theatre work, I hung out with a lot of what, what we in, in the UK would, would deem to be sort of middle class, yeah. a lot more well-read than the... Uh, I did develop a kind of love of drama and reading drama and obviously acting and uh, for a couple of years. And, uh, at that, and and I think I was about 20 or 21. I did apply for the, the in, Col- in London, there's reasonably famous college, the Guildhall College of um, Music and Drama. And I was called back into the last 50, I think. I can't remember how many people apply, but they they pull back 50 of you. And then from that 50, they select 25 for the next cohort. Mm. And I got into that 50 and you work with them for a weekend and do some intensive um, workshopping. And uh, so, you know, if I'd have gotten the, 
the chosen cohort then at 21 I would have gone to university so there was obviously something in me that that wanted to pursue and learn more I was very curious Mm. but it needed to be curiosity that was nurtured on my terms so yeah um interesting but but they said come back in a couple of years because normally that I think they like to take drama students who are about 21 22 and I think I was 19 or 20 at the time and then the ship sailed on and I got into other things and and I think actually on those two days as well you worked with some of the third years and um I'll keep it polite on your podcast but they they weren't my people (laughs) let me put it your people yeah I'm, I'm really curious Kevin just to dig a little bit deeper into your um experience with creative arts and and was it was it something that drew you to that um was it did you did you enjoy the experience of uh creating or being on stage or working with other people or or what was that process like for you because it doesn't seem um it it seems like you wouldn't have had that exposure to that type of people if you hadn't have relocated out of your out of southern england and moved to london is that is, is that a sort of a correct assumption yeah, look, um, one of the things I omitted to say, so I finished at 16, didn't have enough qualifications. My parents encouraged me to go to, you know, what would be TAFE College, really, and, and um, yeah. get a skill. So they, I think we enrolled me in, I think it was called a pre-OND, Ordinary National Diploma in Construction. And I spent a week watching some old fellow lay bricks, and I was like, I'm not doing this. So... We had a bit of a power at home and then spoke to the principal at college and he said, well, okay, why don't you do do five O-levels? And funnily enough, he said, you seem like a really quiet, shy boy. Why don't, and I had four O-levels that I was, you know, I was going to retake English, math. I think I've always liked history. So he said, do history. I was really intrigued by sociology. So he said, do that. But we needed a fifth. And he said, I think... I think drama would really make you come out of yourself. And I was like, drama? Didn't even really know what it was. So I went, okay, fine. And uh, Interesting. I guess reflecting on it now, thinking about your question about teachers, the drama teacher um, said I had a, a real talent for stage. So, and she really encouraged me. Wow. Um, and I, you know knocked it out of the park for the performance part, but then you had to do a written exam. <laughs> and my, <laughs> I, my mates were all going to go and see Peter Tosh up in London at the Rainbow. So I did the minimum hour you had to stay in the exam room. And then I left. <laughs> and because, because she was uh, moderating um, um, the proctor for the exam, she couldn't actually call me out and make me sit down again. So um, I wasn't... I wasn't I wasn't her uh, favourite person for for a while after that. But I guess that planted a seed and said, okay, I've got a talent here. So then when I went to London, um, there was a small community theatre and I auditioned and got Mm. with them. And I guess I realised that there were different ways of learning stuff. There were different Mm. ways of um, working through um, problems in a creative context that seemed um, more experiential, more fluid. And these yeah. things kind of resonated for me. Yeah. That I wasn't, you know, I didn't grow up in a family where we were readers. So that aspect of engaging with with thought and, you know, wow. thinking about stuff uh, through the written word wasn't something that was well established in me. So I guess, I guess in drama, I kind of realized that you could wow. explore a lot about the self. Yeah. Uh, and others through through that kind of medium. So I suppose that planted a seed. Later on, working with the uh, bands, um, yeah, we just kind of, uh, you know, like bands used used to form, maybe still form like this, you know, you just got some like-minded friends and said, okay, let's put some flyers up. And, <laughs> and then we, you know, it, it moves along. I think the guitarist and his wife, used to run a recording studio so we all kind of worked there um and that took up about another four or five years and we did a couple of couple of recordings did a small album which is i sometimes embarrass my kids by 
play so it. It's it's out there somewhere, is it? On oh yeah, it's on YouTube. I'll say no more. <laughs> I might um uh I, I might put a link in a show notes. It's up to you though. Uh, that would be uh that's 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 really interesting. And thank you so much, Kevin, for um for sharing that because I'm I'm really really interested in um the things that motivate us and the reason why and how different people in education got to see and perceive the world um, as they currently do. And I think it's really interesting to, to dig a little deeper into people's stories. So I'm hugely grateful for you taking the time. Um, fast forwarding a little bit, what on earth uh, is an education futures architect? And uh, <laughs> yeah, what, I mean, I mean, how do you, uh, when you tell someone what you do, um, do they have a follow-up question? It's usually that one. Um, <laughs> so I've, I've kind of worn various hats since I joined the company I work with at the moment, which yeah. when I joined was, was branded as Dulwich College International. And then I think last year we rebranded as Education in Motion because we had a number of different brands or types of schooling, right? So we had Dulwich Colleges, Dulwich High Schools. We have the Hong International, which is bilingual, bicultural, K-12 schools in China. And then uh, we acquired the Green School Group. And then I also do some work with the School of Humanity. Um, and uh, so I helped establish an institute for learning and research for the group. Um, prior to that, I was doing some work on with business development on looking at, you know, sort of future schools opportunities. And so I was in, you know, I was director of international curriculum for a while and director of the Institute Learning and Research. And then uh, the founder or, or co-founder, Fraser White, really wanted to get into the innovation space with high school in particular. And he asked me to work as the educational lead with a small team to develop that concept. Uh, and so, you know, we were kicking the can around director this, director that. And I'm like, oh, I'm so tired of director of whatever, you know. It's like, can we not think of something a bit more out there? And so Carly Kwan, uh, another New South Waleser um, who I was working with on that, she she cooked up the title, I think. And I, we were like, oh, yeah, that sounds pretty neat. It's always an in because as soon as you say it, it's a conversation starter. So what does it actually mean? Uh, basically, within EIM, basically, I look at future-facing designs, frameworks, curricula, mm. um, the credentialing of that, the university outreach and networking, and then also supporting business development and saying, well, how much is it going to cost to try and deliver one of these models? Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. It, and what, um, with EIM, what sort of questions are you asking? What are some of those big problems that you're trying to solve that have currently got you stumped or got you thinking? Well, I suppose going back to the, uh, the initial impetus that Fraser provided around, look, I really want, I want, to do something that innovates and is potentially a change maker in, in the high school space specifically. And we've worked with some different consultants and, and played around with models. Um, but fundamentally, you always come up against the brick wall, which is the established credential cartels that exist globally, whether it's ACT, College Board, IB Diploma, A-Level you know, HSC, whatever it is, there's there's either some national qualification or an international qualification. And because of the structure of those qualifications and the way in which they're operationalized through, you know, big exam sessions, for example, that has um, a massive impact on what you can do in the years prior to that, right? Yeah. Because, of course, you're... No educator wants to set young people up for failure. So if really the, the end point is around large-scale summative assessments, you are going to give over a fair amount of the curriculum time to effectively 
coaching um, students through the process of how to perform well in high stakes summatives. Yeah. yeah. And so I kind of said to Fraser, well, I'm happy to try and create innovative framework, curricular frameworks, models. I said, but unless you're prepared for us to explore what alternative credentialing could look like as well, much of it, much of the curriculum innovation falls on kind of fallow ground because at some point you are going to have to work um, and use a fair amount of the learning time and the learning experience to enable students to feel adequately prepared to sit pretty narrow academic um, examinations. Mm. Mm. There's um, so many... Um so many questions in that and and i wonder why and this is once again this is a podcast a whole podcast episode in itself but why do you think we continue to do things that we know don't work is it just easier or humans creatures of habit and they just want to continue down this industrial model of education is it is it do you think it's too hard to change or what are some of the barriers that you've come across because you're not just talking about localized change i mean the work that you're doing by in the school of humanity and also green school and obviously eim you're talking large scale global transformation of education um i mean there's yeah, yeah. Look, I there's, think there's, there's a lot in that yeah it, well as i said earlier i i think private education or some private education um has an obligation to try and create innovative models where it can, partly because uh, it often has the money, but also more importantly, it has the agility. Um, if you think about public sector, you know, so if, with yourself working with the ministry, it's very hard to move away from scale there, right? Mm. Um, you know, going back to the book I mentioned earlier, Herman Taneja is talking about how could we leverage a ubiquitous technological landscape to unscale and develop more authentic personalization? Because, you know, many, many educational narratives, I think personalization is has replaced differentiation in that we all talked it, but it was a bit of an aerosol term in that we spray it around and it doesn't, it just disappears. It does, I don't know that it actually makes that much change. And Tanasia was just kind of saying that we could approach at large scale different ways of personalizing the learning journey, but also evidencing that learning uh, in ways that are more flexible. Um, and so I think. Uh, Private education's got the opportunity where it has an appetite to play around with that. And there's, you know, there's a number of schools that I, I'm involved with or, or network with on a regular basis that do try, try and do that stuff. You know, I mean, I think you you mentioned um, Jen Buchanan earlier. And I mean, you know, she works with Peter Hutton and the, what they're trying to do with future schools, I think, is trying to move that. I've met with Sandra Mulligan, uh, Milligan and, and the work she's doing with new metrics. You know, we are, there are people out there trying to do different things. Bill Lucas with Rethinking Assessment UK. Um, but I think if you're trying to, to make radical shift or if you're like at least trying to innovate in the public sector space, it's a ton more difficult because you're obviously financially beholden to whatever parties in power but you're also the the the, mm. the economics of it is also tied to policy yeah with the uh, sitting government and yeah. as we know in western democracies you know it's either a three to five year turnaround uh and and it feels like if you're in public sector that everything gets kind of reinvented again and all those quote initiatives get dumped and new stuff comes in and mm. you know, um and everyone's got a lot of skin in the game i think the the big exam boards whether they're nation state exam boards or whether they're um, international providers a large part of their business modeling is around the development of 
the the um, high stakes exams and the marking of them. Um, it's accountability, I mean, isn't it? It's re regulation and accountability plays a, a yeah, really and a deep part, yeah. and a deep in the English speaking world particularly. I think a deep distrust of the professionalism of teachers. Wow. Wow. Um, so you create checklists. You, you create a high stakes regime because that determines the accountability of everyone in that system. Yeah. yeah. Um, again, you know, using Biester, I think he and I've quoted him elsewhere a number of times, but it resonates with me. Perhaps we're now, you know, we're in an era where we've come to value what we can measure rather than say, how do we measure what we actually value? Yeah. I think that that's wow. quite an important concept to digest. Um, and in the early days of the SE21 development work, I did have a number of conversations with people like Cambridge International Assessment with, um, you know, senior folk there and at Pearson and College Board and ACT, I think, to say, look, even if you take a narrow, relatively narrow academic traditional qualification like the final two years of a math programme, uh, and, and if you were to look at the concepts in that scope and sequence or syllabus, and if you were to create a micro-credential around a cluster of those concepts and students could go, you know, within reason at their own pace and stack those concepts mm. uh, into a digital wallet. Um, it does, does a number of things. One, it, it allows potentially for you to put elective modules in there for students to specialize in areas within that two year paradigm, let's say. Um, that's are that's of more relevance to themselves. Yeah. So they're digital, you know, individual. If you take a class of 30 kids, each of them might have a slightly more nuanced digital wallet, but it still equals the same qualification, right? Again, there's challenges around that, but we can we, you know, we can always work through those challenges. Yeah. But also, I think for the for the exam boards, what I was saying is really each of those digital micro-credentials that you stack into a wallet that becomes a qualification, each of those you can marketize so that your business model is not actually radically disrupted in terms of income mm. than you get from the high-stake summative exams yeah. that you know, students sprint through two years and yeah. sit a bunch of exams at the end of course. Yeah. But I think that that also does something about well-being, I think, mm. for students because potentially they they can uh self-paced more uh potentially and maybe with um a hybrid model particularly the opportunity is there for students to go quicker or to take a bit more time to develop the skills necessary to evidence learning around each of those micro-credential areas mm. I, I mean you've there's there's so many important uh points there i think you um I think you're raised. And what, I just wanted to get your thoughts on what you think needs to change in terms of teacher training. I mean, you talked about this kind of uh, mistrust of the profession, a, a, a concept which I, uh, I completely believe in, I completely support uh, your point of view. And I'm just wondering, like, has the role of the teacher shifted? Because it seems like the role of schools have. And, and what? how do we even begin to have those conversations about how do we train this recent, these recent cohorts of teachers for classrooms of the future, because that whole concept of relinquishing control seems to be um, uh, really, really difficult to do. But yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, look, in education, I think teachers are unfortunately the ones who have things done to them. Yeah. Um, so the agency piece is is in. in in many cases in the English-speaking world, I think is, oh, oh, is is woeful, the lack of agency, the lack of trust. Um, you know, when I was still in schools, I worked in a school where um, it was uh, two, two different educational pathways. One was an IB continuum school and the other one was the German system. And I was often... I was often very surprised at the amount of trust 
an agency that was given over to the German faculty. Uh, you know, they, they kind of, and it, I don't, I'm not saying it always worked well. Uh, it depends partly on the, the motivations and the dispositional traits of the individual educator, but systemically, I think to trust the professionalism of educators means to give them more agency to, to plot the paths for the students that they, mm. they work with and, and serve. And I think we, in the English-speaking world, have lent more towards systematizing external drivers and, and mechanisms for accountability that fundamentally remove agency from teachers. Then if you've got the summative examination regimes, as well as the quality assurance mechanisms, they feel no agency. And I think in many instances, there's a lack of enthusiasm from their perspective to give agency to students as well. So that's why we're often seeing more, yeah. and, more, more and more students in middle school and high school who are kind of switching off because mm. they don't see the purpose or if they see the purpose, it's a very narrow one towards clustering some qualifications. Yeah. Um, and so uh, what ha needs to happen with training, um, I guess, I'm not sure what can be done in teacher training if we're not going to widen the skill sets that we're providing them with. I mean, I don't know about yourself, but if I think back to my teacher training a long time ago, but looking at programs now, I don't see a lot of change. Yeah. Most of it was around how can you plan a course of study and manage your time and design assessments within that those parameters about narrow academics and largely high stakes summatives as the endpoint. Mm. And you know, I understand there are many practicalities, particularly when you're trying to do it in a nation state with many potentially, you know, millions of students moving through that system. It's attractive to to maintain that status quo, but uh, I guess right, <laughs> yeah, I guess it's yeah. and again, it's it's an interesting territory. But I think what's happened is through the lack of agency, uh, we now have a continuum of viewpoints that are ideologically driven from the conservatism of people yeah. like Sweller and CLT through to the progressive end of the continuum with, you know, project-based or challenge-based learning. And what happens is, um, sometimes for ideological reasons, sometimes through a lack of truly engaging with understanding those different ends of the spectrum, we get entrenched uh, camps mm. established, and particularly if you've got political drivers behind that, as I think you're seeing in England at the moment, in the, mm. in the public sector particularly, you know, I was quite surprised a couple of years ago to see them digging up Sweller and Kirshner's work from the 1980s around cognitive load theory. Um, and when you dig into it a bit more, them and people like Tom Bennett and the narrative around behavior and management, you're creating a really kind of quite confining environment there to make up for the fact that I think the learning journey and the coverage and scope of what students are learning is switching them off. So therefore we seem to be tightening and narrowing the focus of what we need to almost drill them to be able to do, you know, behave appropriately, use interleaving, cognitive load. I'm not saying those don't have a place as, as tools, but they're not the be all and end all. And we're often looking for a panacea in education, which is often driven by policy, mm. which I don't think is necessary. I mean, I, I prefer to explore things like um, Bill Cope and Mary Kislancis out of the University of Illinois talk about reflexive pedagogies where you leverage things like you know, mimetic and didactic um, tools as and when you feel they're appropriate for the learning journey, but you also leverage social constructivism mm. and connectivism and so forth. So 
really it's more of a utility belt of different tools. But if you go back to teach training, it depends on really the faculty in those universities and what they believe in determining the curriculum that you study. And as a teacher, that has a huge influence. That and the institutional practices of the first couple of years on the job. Mm. That's visceral and experiential, right? So a lot of the stuff you're still learning then, that and your teacher training kind of set you in stone. And there's a lot of research that really in the first five years of practice, many educators, the compass has been set and they follow that for a large part of their career. So I, I guess... I know that was a pretty meandering response. Right. It's a complex, it's a complex area, but I think it's a huge question. No, I appreciate you pulling it apart and each training is designed to provide teachers for the nation state. Uh, we don't have teacher training programs, you know, newly qualified teacher training programs really in the international sector. They're starting to emerge through some of the universities. But again, I would say largely, you know, many of the faculty members there potentially haven't experienced um, international education themselves. So it's done in a theoretical way. Um, and so, yeah, I, I guess it's what, what I'm working with Russ Cayley and, and some others at the moment is to say, well, are there ways uh we could design professional learning uh in a way that gives some deep learning opportunities and follow up because obviously a lot of research around you know going on a one-stop shop pl three days workshop really unless there's some sort of meaningful follow-up it's not going to have much of an impact on practice when you get back into the institute mm. practices of your school yeah so things like the green education certificate uh the work that the um through that's grown out of think global the think learning studio i think yeah, seeing some of those things emerge they're very small scale but again maybe they can become examples of innovation yeah similar to like i said with private education examples of education trying to do something different trying to create relationships with universities to do longitudinal research to see if it is making a difference and then also, also connecting with global policy. Yeah. No, I, I think that's um, that's so important, Kevin. And as I said, there is just so much in that. We almost need to do a, a whole podcast series on this because there's, there's a lot in there. And, and I was just wondering what your advice would be to a, a teacher who's listening to this that maybe feels a little bit stuck and really wants to be that teacher that innovates and that teacher that creates these wonderful opportunities for their students, but feels as if they're part of a system which is restrictive and stifling. Do you have any advice for that teacher? What could they start to do? Um, <clears throat> I think for me, something that, I, I figured out far too late in my classroom career uh, was to really become an authentically reflective practitioner. Mm. So really actually think, and it's hard, you know, after you've been doing a full, let's say it's the full day on a Thursday where you get no freeze and you get to the end of it and you're knackered and you've got a stack of marking and it's hard, but finding space in your life to create that opportunity for a bit of balance to say, okay, what, however small it is, what, what kind of things could I do to make a change mm. in the context that I'm in? Irrelevant of the institutional or managerial or leadership practices in that school, all the external pressures from exam boards and so forth. Um, and the other thing is, again, I didn't, I didn't realize that I was good at it when I gave the time until far too late in my career was the relational part. We don't spend enough time focusing on the fact that we as adults are hugely significant influences in a negative, as I, as I explained earlier, or in a positive way for the young people that that, that we work with and 
the relational is, is hugely important. I mean, when I first joined the company I'm with now, we had the luxury because uh, our, our executive board really wanted to get under the hood of, well, what does good learning look like? So we used a kind of Hattie-esque set of focus questions, ran a ton of focus groups. The end of a year across all the schools, we interviewed over 8,000 students from early years, you know, all the way through to graduating classes. Um, and obviously with the early years and early primary, it was done in a more ob ob questioning observation. So it was done in a way that, you know, we weren't obviously asking the same kinds of questions um, in the detail that we'd be asking students in late secondary. But the, the way in which it was designed was to try and give us some qualitative thematic feedback mm -hmm. on again and it definitely was not a rate my teacher it was very much anonymized it was more a general conversation about how do you learn what does good learning look like for you how do you know when it's happening you know how would you suggest examples of when it's not happening what's not working then and some of the themes so that was eight thousand students about a thousand teachers uh, and about six, seven hundred parents. And some of the themes that came out of that were really powerful. And one that's always stuck with me was, particularly with the older students, was the relational. Uh, so many kids saying, look, and I don't blame my teacher. I really like my teachers, but they don't see me. They see me as a university destination or an exam grade. And I know it's in my best interest and they want that but I want them to see me and connect with me. And I wow. want more time for that. And if we've got, you know, a lot of young people asking for that, you know, we don't really do enough to create significant rites of passage in that relational journey through secondary school. And I, I just think as a practitioner, really particularly in secondary, um, trying to create those relationships. I think if you look at our primary colleagues, oftentimes they're just really proficient at doing that because it's a massive part of what you do, right? You're with that relatively small number of students over a year. You, you get to know one another very well. But, you know, if you're having 150, 200 students go through your class in the week in secondary, it's really hard to do that. But I think just figuring out ways to be more relational, ways to be more reflective as a practitioner. Fantastic. I um I think that's some wonderful, wonderful qualities. Um Kevin, if I was um if I was just about to move into a leadership position in a school and we were sitting down having a cup of coffee and asked you for a piece of advice, what piece of advice would that be? Uh well, none of it's new, but um, look look and learn. I mean, you know, I know from my own leadership experience, I defaulted to let's make a plan. Got the plan, broadcast the plan. We all got the plan. Yeah, we got the plan. Let's go. And then I get to the end of the corridor and no one's followed me. Because I didn't understand the relational impact and I didn't understand I needed to see the context uh, of, of the institution that I was leading in. And so I think that's really, really important. And another thing, think about leadership as an, as an, as an aesthetic. Think about it as an aesthetic sense of sensibility. What does that mean? So, in other words, and I and I, and I borrow obviously from the arts for a specific reason. Mm. And uh, authentic aesthetic sensibility. Uh, I think you think a lot about that. Read around about what what does it what does it mean to lead in an aesthetic life. And what does that mean for me as a leader? I think it goes beyond values. I think it goes beyond some of the other leadership narratives that are very popular, you know, humility and so forth. 
those may be composite composite elements of that but what what does it mean to create an aesthetic that you understand about you as a leader mm. uh, how might you um how might you fashion and it you know in in the spirit of an aesthetic it's always an aspiration to get somewhere but you never really necessarily attain it mm. it's not good, right? yeah um kevin just a couple of questions i want to be respectful of your time um You've talked a little bit about um, a credential, the credentialing model in high schools, but can you maybe talk about a couple of examples that you're work, currently working on um, in terms of maybe the Green School or also, or also the School of Humanity? What's that looking like for you and why is that a, a project that you are so passionate about? Yeah, so with the, the SE21 project that we worked on for about 18 months, we did a lot of research to design a curriculum framework around what we call literacies. And that work has fed into um, developing a framework for the green schools because the, the, there's three green schools currently and, and more coming down the path as it were. Um, and each of them kind of, they have some fundamental components that are common uh, and that they, they have diverged in certain areas and so we were trying to sort of wrap around a curriculum framework that could resonate for them and incorporate the commonalities they already had but take it a little bit further so we've evolved six domains of what we call green literacy and those have subdomains within them so that's a way of really trying to um, scaffold knowledge skills and dispositional traits uh, for the learners. Um, and with School of Humanity, we used a similar approach to develop uh, a framework, a scaffold for human literacies. So they have similarities in the, in mm. the notion of them being literacies, but if you like, the subsets within those literacies, the areas that we're choosing to articulate as, as knowledge areas and skill areas uh, have a different lexicon. But really we landed on literacies as a term because uh, through a lot of the research we were doing around things like competency, uh, capability, uh, mastery, which many of the more forward focused educational models have, have moved towards, um, you know, Paul, I think it's Paul Bowles, uh, we connected a couple of years ago to talk about his human capabilities framework in Australia. Um, there are many numerous competency frameworks out there and obviously perhaps a bit more popular in the United States is the, the concept of mastery. Uh, I felt they were all problematized in that really there's no clear definition. Um, you go to different parts of the world, you get a different definition of what competencies are, same with capabilities, arguably the same with mastery. I think the problem mainly for me with mastery is to suggest that a high schooler at graduation has mastered anything, I think, and I mean it really genuinely, it's probably a bit naive. I mean, you're, you're beginning the journey towards a mastery but i do think they go beyond competence um so we used literacies as a term because it implies fluency and i think fluency allows for uh for the idea of what you should have at the end of high school to resonate more so you're literate in a number of different domains and you develop fluencies through personalization to higher levels within those domains depending on who's an individual learning so that's kind of why we, we landed on the concept of human literacies and green wow. literacy. Wow, it's fascinating. And uh, Kevin, are you um, speaking more globally uh, now? Are you um, optimistic about the way that uh, we seem to be heading in terms of our education systems? Or do you, uh, yeah, what are you, what are you seeing? What do you think as you look sort of into the next five or 10 years? You sound like a very optimistic person, but I you've got to be, don't you? 
Yeah, I, I think we will see certain types of schooling evolve uh, in the private sector. Um, I think in the public sector, it will happen at a slower pace. I do feel, going back to the, you know, the credentials and qualification um, discourse, that, that is shifting already, right? Because you've got places like Estonia and Malta that are fully digitizing identities, right? So your financial records, your medical records, your educational records will be held in, one would hope, sustainable versions of blockchain. Um, and so the digitization of, of wallets of identity is coming. Um, Canada is exploring that space in some of their high school transcript team. I think Australia is also moving in that direction. Um, and so that, that will develop. Um, so I think there'll be change there. Once, once we change or concede potentials for personalizing the evidencing of learning that, that students capture in a digital wallet and work with universities and um, career pathways to recognize that, uh, then I think we could start to see some shift. Now, alongside that, I have to say, obviously you've got various platforms which are using aspects of technology to lock down the summative even more, you know, with remote doctoring and things like that. And I don't think that's going to go away because, as I said earlier, education is an ideological game. And I think <clears throat> some of the more traditional ways of approaching um, how students evidence what they've learned in compulsory education uh, is, is there's always going to be um, traditionalist conservatives who don't really want to move away from what they experienced because there's an element of, of trust. Yeah. One would even say there's a narrative around access and equity because, of course, the danger with innovation happening in the private sector is it's for those that can, mm. not accessible for those that can't. So I, I do think that there's an important synergy there that any, any lessons that get learned at small scale in the private sector can and must link to the larger public models if if we're going to have a a more symbiotic relationship and of course there's a there's a ton of different social exclusivity discourses around that mean that there's a, obstacles for that happening um so yeah. it's not an easy road but i think <clears throat> i think it has has to change you look at some of the interesting work that I'm doing with School of Humanity, which is really designed at creating a largely what they call challenge-based approach to the human literacies framework, really embedded intern and externship opportunities, links with universities, a very rich, um, agentic learning journey for the students. And uh, they really want to get into low-income, mid-income countries and, and offer that education very, very cheaply, you know. Yeah. In a longer term, you know, less than... Yeah. I wouldn't want to put a number on it, but, you know, if they could, they would like to get it down as cheaply as possible to just, you know, a few hundred dollars here and there, or yeah. even less annually. For yeah. those students in, in those countries, where the public education is uh, is under even more stresses and strains than it is in the high income countries. Yeah. So, and I, you know, another group that we work with, to give them a shout out, is Amala Education that have designed that you know the high school uh, high school program for students from fifteen to twenty three, really, who are are displaced through conflict. So they've got campus and. Um, Kenya, another one in um, Jordan, and uh, I think they have another one planned in Greece, wow. so that students can, as as they're moving 
to try and find a new home, they can still pick up the credentialing for, for a high school diploma. And then working, of course, with universities, which is in many respects a bit of a bottleneck to recognise this stuff. Yeah. Look, it, it's so interesting, Kevin, and to hear some of the things that you're working on and some of the um, uh, uh, some of the incredible organisations that you're partnering with is is beyond inspirational. And I, I um, like I said, I want to be respectful of your time, and I, I I'm just so grateful that you take the time to talk with me today, uh, from Singapore all the way to all the way to sunny Sydney, Australia, and hugely um, uh, grateful for the work that you're doing um, in the space that I'm involved in. So. Thank you so much for your time this evening. And it's been a, a, a huge privilege to get to talk to you. Um, yeah, I can't thank you enough. No, um, I'm really appreciative of the opportunity, Matthew. I mean, I think uh, the opportunities to, to talk about this stuff, but also um, I'd invite people to, to offer their thoughts mm. through your, through your um, site and feedback and, and join the conversation. Fantastic. Um, Dr. Kevin House, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we can do a round two at some point. Thanks for your time. No worries. Take care. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Art of Teaching podcast today. I hope that you, like me, got some valuable insights out of our discussions. For show notes, please visit theartofteachingpodcast.com. And I've also created a private Facebook group where we continue the discussion there. The link will be in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and can't wait to see you for next week's episode.